from the Credit Union National Association. This is the CUNA News Podcast. Credit Union people. Credit Union ideas. Amid an extended and contentious 2020 election, the CUNA League advocacy team had another successful campaign cycle, winning 97% of the more than 400 races it supported for candidates on both sides of the aisle. That includes wins on 10 of 11 priority races. As President-elect Joe Biden prepares to take office in January, the CUNA League advocacy team is examining what a Biden presidency will mean for credit unions, advocacy, and progress toward our priorities. I'm Bill Merrick, Deputy Editor for CUNA News. In this episode of the CUNA News Podcast, Ryan Donovan, CUNA's Chief Advocacy Officer, discusses the 2020 election, what it will mean for credit union advocacy and key issues, and next moves for the CUNA League advocacy team. So it has been a long, interesting election cycle. How are you and your team holding up? And how do you unwind after a big election like this? Well, I think we're all doing just fine right now. Thanks for having me on the podcast this week. You know, our political affairs uh, team has been spending the better part of the last uh, year getting ready for the election and preparing our partisan communications and our independent expenditures and making sure that we've got support for the candidates. And so the bulk of the work is behind them. Now it transfers over to the government relations side and our policy analysis folks. There's a lot of work ahead, and, and uh, I'm sure we'll be able to discuss some of that coming up. But for for me, you know, I try not to get too wound up about uh, these elections in the first place. You know, it, it helps that I'm personally a political moderate. I've supported candidates on both sides of the aisle over the years, and I've also uh, developed a keen ability to compartmentalize. So, you know, I go and vote, and then professionally, I deal with the outcome that voters deliver. I don't really get too worked up over it. If I do, I lose focus on advocating for credit unions, I think. So currently, uh, President Trump is filing some legal challenges and uh, requesting recounts. Do you think those efforts will change the election results? You know, at this point, I don't. And I wanted to try to put this in context. We have an extraordinary process for electing a president of the United States, really an extraordinary process for our election process in general. But, you know, in terms of electing the president, I actually, I wrote my master's thesis about 20 years ago on why efforts to reform the electoral college have historically failed. You know, it's, it's much misunderstood. It's a much maligned system. But the conclusion that I reached in my thesis was that the Electoral College has survived for as long as it has because it's never failed to produce a president that has had legitimacy. I mean, even in the election of 1876, which was really, aside from 2000, the last time there was a real big dispute, that was settled through some compromise, certainly, but it was settled within the auspices of the Electoral College. So we have a macro process that's worked pretty well, even if it is sometimes misunderstood. Now, the process, though, for running an election is more than just the words that are in the Constitution. The Constitution gives states the rights to determine how they select their presidential electors and how they conduct their elections. So we really have like between the 50 states and the District of Columbia, we got 51 different sets of rules going on. But really, the commonality 
among them is that it takes some time after voters go to the polls to count the votes and to certify them. And the Constitution and federal law recognize this. And the way that we know that they recognize it is that they provide some time between the election day and when the electors go to cast their votes. And so the really important day is the Monday after the second Wednesday in December. That's when the electors are going to come together. But between now and then, states are going to go through the process of certifying them. I know that the president has filed some lawsuits alleging voter abuse or illegal voting or or, um, election fraud. The questions before the state courts right now are really about whether or not the states followed the laws that they have established in conducting the elections and certifying the vote. So, you know, if there's evidence, present the evidence, let's have the case heard. This is what this period of time is for. Now, I know that we always have this process and usually there's a much more efficient transfer of power. We don't seem to be having that right now. I don't have any insight into the legal arguments that are being made or the you know, whether there's a lot of weight that ought to be given to it. But I do think that our institutions are pretty strong and they're certainly stronger than any one person or a party. So this is going to get worked out and it's going to get worked out within a system that's ultimately designed to produce legitimacy. So there are a couple of months before the inauguration. What are the chances for President Trump making substantial changes during that time? I think there's going to be some bluster, but I don't expect major policy changes in the next few months. Certainly nothing that couldn't be reversed in a new administration. And I don't expect anything significant uh, related to credit unions. As we look sort of through the next 10 weeks or so, the to-do list in Washington is pretty well established. There'll be some discussions regarding COVID recovery legislation. There'll be efforts to reauthorize the Defense Authorization Act. I think Congress is going to try to pass an omnibus appropriations bill, so fund the government through the next fiscal year. The administration may have some influence over those things, but I think that that's sort of the limited set of to-dos between now and inauguration. And another, I guess, outstanding piece is the two runoff elections in Georgia for the Senate. How do you think those will play out, and how likely do you think it'll be that the Democrats will gain control of the Senate? You know, on paper, it looks like a tough road for the Democrats. Two Georgia runoffs. Stranger things have happened, but Democrats need to win both those seats in order to have the majority in January. And, you know, I question how likely that is, given that you don't have a presidential election on the ballot to drive turnout. So when we do scenario planning at this stage in the game, we're preparing for a narrow GOP majority in the Senate. If that changes, we're obviously prepared to work with whatever outcome there is. But right now, we're anticipating that the Republicans will win one or both of those seats in uh, Georgia. And how did the uh, pro-credit union candidates fare in the uh, CUNA League priority races? We had a really good year. We went uh, 10 and 1 in our priority races. We had either partisan communications or independent expenditures in support of Senator Susan Collins, Steve Daines, Gary Peters, and Tina Smith. We also were working with Representative Don Bacon, Steve Shabbat, Rodney Davis, Jared Golden, Andy Kim, Susie Lee, all of whom won their races. In fact, 97% of QLAC-supported candidates ended up winning their election. To put that in relative terms, we participated 
in over 400 races. So we'll see at least 31 freshman House members that were supported by credit unions, four new freshman Senate members. So we had a really good cycle. Um, And, you know, this is really important because it is critical that we have folks in Congress that understand and support credit unions as we move into a period where we'll have different leaders in charge in Washington. So what does all this mean for credit union advocacy over the next few years? Well, we're going to have some pretty significant challenges ahead of us, I think. And one way that I begin to look at it is trying to answer the question, what does a Biden administration mean in general? And then sort of dig down to figure out how will that impact credit union advocacy? And I think when you think about how President-elect Biden might approach the presidency, I think you can certainly draw clues from his time as vice president, but also his time in the U.S. Senate. And he is generally perceived to be a centrist Democrat, relatively moderate. And given the fact that he represented Delaware in the Senate for so long, he's got a pretty good familiarity with the financial services market. The overtones that he has given both during the campaign and also uh, since the election suggest that he really genuinely wants to try to bridge between sort of the two Americas that showed up to vote in this election. And I think really the question that we have right now is whether he's going to find willing partners on both sides of the aisle to work with him. And his challenge is not just working with a Republican Senate or potentially a Republican Senate, but He also faces a challenge within his own party. As a centrist Democrat, he was pulled to the left a little bit during the campaign. There are certainly a lot of progressive influences within the Democratic Party that would like to see him move left as president. Where we're going to see this play out is in personnel. Personnel is policy. And he has a group of advisors, of economic advisors, who have been with him for decades that reflect that more moderate wing of the Democratic Party reflect an understanding of the important role that the financial services industry play in the economy of the country. And there's a second faction of uh, progressive Democrats led by Elizabeth Warren, Senator Bernie Sanders, who have a slightly different role. So how is that going to work out? That's a big question the answer to which will help us figure out what to expect in 2021. And and we're going to begin to get that answer as the transition continues down the road. You know, another thing that sort of comes to mind when I think about what is it going to mean for next year, President-elect Biden is going to need Republican votes to confirm his nominees to his cabinet and to other posts within his administration. And so I think that will probably mean you're going to see more moderate or less progressive individuals nominated for most of the um, roles. When we look at the financial services role and we consider those two major camps, you know, our expectation would be that sort of the establishment Democrats that have been with President-elect Biden for a while would probably find themselves in sort of the macroeconomic roles, Treasury Secretary, Council of Economic Advisors, those types of roles but he's going to need GOP votes to get his nominees through. When we think about the issues that he may be facing early on, clearly the COVID crisis is going to be front and center. 
he's sent that message that he understands that from the beginning of the transition. And I would expect that at least for the first year of of the administration, that's going to be the primary focus. So we take all of that into account when we're considering how might we approach the administration, how might we approach Congress with an advocacy agenda. So what's your next move from a CUNA League advocacy perspective? So we're in the final stages of preparing our advocacy agenda for next year. And it's actually, uh, it's a process that is almost perpetual. We really start thinking about the advocacy agenda for the following year in May and June. But having said that, throughout the entire year, we're always fine-tuning things for the agenda, but we're in the final stages right now. We've had some great engagement with our league partners and with credit unions over the last uh, six months during the pandemic, of course, trying to understand where policy should be modified or adjusted to facilitate credit unions serving their members, but also looking forward to how uh, we might influence policy so that credit unions remain in a position to serve their members. We've done surveys to get a sense of which issues credit unions are facing that they find would be high impact if they were resolved or have high urgency. And then we marry that with what we just discussed, which is the political realities on the ground. And While we're still in the process of developing the agenda, I think it's fair to say that as we look at 2021, what we're going to um, lead with is the important role that credit unions play in improving the financial well-being of their members and advancing their communities, and why it's important that policy support that and encourage that activity. And when we look at policy, we're going to look at it through the lens of the impact that it has on our ability to improve our members' financial well-being and advance our communities. And that means we want to continue to reduce regulatory burdens so that we can do more to help our members. We want to continue to focus on expanding credit union powers and opportunities, enhancing information security, and of course, preserving the tax status. And we want to advance our agenda by telling that story about how credit unions improve the financial well-being of their members and advance the community. So we'll be wrapping up the agenda building process, if you will, here in the next couple of weeks so that we're really ready to go when the calendar turns for 2021. A lot of your advocacy shifted to virtual during the pandemic. Are there any approaches or practices that you implemented during the pandemic that you'll keep going forward? Through our Advancing Community Initiative, we've worked to improve the quality and the impact of credit union stories, and we've done more with social media and with video probably this year than we have previously. Of course, all of our engagements with lawmakers these days are virtual and we're getting better at that. There are some new ways to go about doing those types of meetings that I think um, have been really exciting and our leagues have been leading the way on that. But going forward, what we really wanna do is make sure that we are able to produce strong stories of credit union impact in every jurisdiction so that policymakers across the country can connect to the work that we're doing, that they can see it in their community, and then back that up with data that show a clear, consistent, and comprehensive story about credit unions' local, state, and national community impact. So the takeaway here is that, yes, we're adapting to 
a situation where we're virtual and we're not in person, but we want to make sure that we're still strengthening that connection that policymakers have historically had with the work that's going on in their community, that they see the stories, and then that we're backing it up with strong data. What's the role of credit unions' diversity, equity, and inclusion work in your advocacy efforts? This is a huge question. And it's one that we get asked a lot, particularly since we've been focused on DEI for the last 18 or 24 months. From both a philosophical and a practical perspective, the relationship between DEI and credit union advocacy is almost completely symbiotic. The goal of credit union advocacy, and this is in our strategic plan, is to revolutionize the operating environment for credit unions. And we try to do that through removing regulatory barriers and expanding credit union powers and opportunities. So advocacy is designed to help create the conditions under which credit unions can more easily and effectively serve their members. Okay, so you've got the credit union goal there. Well, what's that mission? We're trying to fulfill the credit union mission. Well, the mission, of course, is to promote thrift and provide access to credit for provident purposes. That is in the Federal Credit Union Act. And it's, you know, it's a simple enough concept. Credit unions are not-for-profit financial cooperatives. They take deposits from and lend to their members who are the owners and beneficiaries. We get that. Okay, well, we go to market using the cooperative principles that we all know so well. But Ed Filene, the father of the credit union system, he actually issued a bigger challenge to credit unions than what we see in the credit union mission and what's reflected in the cooperative principles. In one of his last speeches before he died, this is 1937, okay? He put forward an idea that he described as understanding and sympathetic cooperation, which he defined as cooperation on a scale which leaves nobody out. He said, there must be no forgotten person There must be no discrimination against race, creed, or color. There must be no special privilege. This was 1937. This, in my mind, is where DEI intersects with credit unions and our advocacy efforts. In order to completely fulfill the mission, credit unions need to make sure that no one's left behind. We need to be open to all and invite them in and ask everyone to participate. So what does that mean practically, right? Well, today, the statutory and regulatory regime to which credit unions are subject is in and of itself a barrier to credit unions fulfilling that mission and fulfilling filings, understanding and vision of understanding and sympathetic cooperation. And the evidence of this is in the field of membership scheme that was originally a creditworthiness tool, but today limits who credit unions can serve I have said that I think that it represents sort of a federally sanctioned form of discrimination, right? Because it limits who can come in the doors of credit unions. And if you don't believe me, ask yourself this, would a modern Congress enact legislation that allows financial services providers to choose groups or communities that they're going to serve at the exclusion of all others? There's no way that they would do that today. In fact, if we went to the Hill today to seek such legislation, we'd be laughed off the Hill. There's more light being shown today on issues of economic equity and diversity and inclusion 
in the financial services market. And the voices that have been calling for banks and credit unions and others to do more to serve the underserved, hold positions of power. And they are really diving deeper into the barriers that minority communities and low-income consumers face in accessing safe and affordable credit on fair terms. So the sun's really, in my mind, setting on the day in which it's enough for credit unions to say that we can only serve those within our field of membership. I think that in the coming years, and it may not happen next year, and it may not happen the year after that, but I think over time, credit unions and banks and others are going to be called to show how they are serving and advancing their community through equitable and inclusive lending practices. And that's why it's really important for us to be able to tell our story about how credit unions are improving their members' financial well-being and advancing the communities that they serve. And that story, that begins with the credit union member. It's about who we serve and how we serve them. It's about what we're doing to expand our ability to reach more diverse members and provide more equitable services. And it's about engaging in understanding and sympathetic cooperation. So, I think that the work that the credit union system does to embrace DEI is essential to our efforts to revolutionize the operating environment for credit unions, but it's not why we should embrace it. This is not about an advocacy agenda. We should embrace it because true to Filene's call, doing so is going to revolutionize how consumers of all backgrounds engage in financial services and how credit unions are fulfilling their mission. So when I think about that connection, I think it's really strong. I know that sometimes it isn't always well received to talk about DEI. What I've always said internally is let's start where we are and make a commitment to get to a better place. If credit unions do that, we're going to be in fine shape. The 2021 GAC is right around the corner. How is that coming along so far? It's exciting. You know, we're planning the first virtual GAC, and I will say it has been energizing and a little intimidating to be a part of it. From a planning perspective, it's given us the opportunity to poke out a few things that uh, I think we've always taken as truth. You know, in normal times, the GAC is like five or six events rolled into one between all the governance activities that take place uh, on the CUNA side. You know, we've got our main stage lineup, the policymakers that come and speak to us, the exhibit hall, the breakout sessions, hill visits, and of course, the networking that we all enjoy. What we're trying to do right now is make sure that we deliver the best of all of these experiences in a virtual setting. And what's really exciting about it is that we expect that in that virtual setting, it'll be accessible to more people, more credit union advocates than ever. And that's going to help make our impact even greater. It's going to be very important in 2021 for us to have that early impact with a new administration, with a new Congress, to have them hear us tell the story. And I just couldn't be more excited about the potential we've got to do that in a virtual setting next year. Do you expect that the Hill visits will be virtual? Yeah, I do. What we're hearing um, on the Hill, at least as long as there is no vaccine widely distributed, it feels like we're on sort of a rolling 11-month delay. So when I talk to folks on the Hill these days, they think maybe September or October next year, 
things might get back to normal and offices might open up. But um, unfortunately, it's not going to be the case for us in March. And um, that's okay. Better safe than sorry. We're doing pretty well, though, with the virtual meetings. The leagues have, uh, I think, really done a great job in producing those and making those successful. And there's always great speakers at the GAC. Do you have a dream GAC speaker that you would like to see someone either living or dead? Wouldn't it be great to have Ed Byling come to the GAC and give a speech and uh, see the progress that has been made on his vision? I just wonder what he would say about it all and how he would inspire us to continue down the road. So my vote would be for Ed Tyler. What parting wisdom would you offer credit union leaders? I just encourage you to stay engaged and uh, continue to have hope. You know, we're in a pretty divisive time in our political discourse. And sometimes that means it's uh, hard to come together, but it's never been more important to come together than it is right now as Americans and as credit union advocates. As credit union advocates, we've got some really significant challenges ahead of us. We got to get through the COVID pandemic and the economic crisis that follows. We've got to make sure that policymakers continue to see us as relevant corporate citizens that improve their community, that serve their constituents. And as I always say, if we don't tell that story ourselves, and if we don't do a good job of telling that story, there are plenty of other voices that are willing to do that for us. So I would just encourage everybody to continue to stay engaged. Check out the GAC. I hope everybody participates in that. Stay connected to your state leagues and engage in state level advocacy where I think the challenges ahead are just as great. But let's continue to come together both as a credit union community and as a country. Thanks for listening to the CUNA News Podcast. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher Radio.